Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another opportunity to gather, to sing, to pray, to preach and hear preaching, and to sit under God's Word. And to do that this morning, we are going to be in Romans 6, verses 6 to 11. Romans 6, 6 to 11. For those of you who might be visiting, we are going through the epistle of Romans. And what we do at the very beginning when we start a series on a book is we'll put some key passages, which I see those have been illuminated a little. Um, we put some key passages on the, on the wall on each side and just to sort of orient our minds constantly as we come in uh, to meditate on this book that we find ourselves in, Paul's epistle to the Romans. It is kind of quintessential Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this particular epistle is considered the most extensive presentation of Paul's theology, of what Paul understood and what Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was teaching about the Christian gospel, about Christ, his person, his work, and all that flow out of that. And as we work our way through Romans, we notice very quickly that there are doctrines everywhere, everywhere we look in this book. And that's the case, by the way, anywhere in the Bible. And it's very explicit in the New Testament epistles in particular. But in Romans, we see these Christian doctrines all over the place. This is truly a doctrinally rich book. It is really like a fudgy brownie, not like one of those cheap chocolate chip cookies that you get somewhere where you have to take a few bites before you can get some of that chocolatey goodness. But this really is like a fudgy brownie. No matter where you bite, on the sides, in the middle, tear it in half. No matter where you bite, your mouth explodes with flavor. That is what we feel as Christians as we go through a book like Romans. It has that effect on us. In each section, there are major doctrines covered. And then all sorts of minor or related doctrines that get scooped up in it. So we find... Uh, various doctrines mentioned alongside the presentation of a main doctrine. Different doctrines in each section being primary. And then Paul sometimes, just as a mere aside, bringing in other doctrines that get explained in other places. And all of these rich doctrines are woven together throughout the epistle. Where justification was the focus of chapter 4, for example, in chapter 6, Paul is addressing sanctification in particular. Holiness, being set apart from sin. And so if these Bible words uh, just sort of throw you for a loop, justification being declared right with God, a, a, forensic, a forensic thing, a, a declarative thing, a, a status, a standing before God, sanctification concerns lived out, realized holiness of life, being set apart, set apart from sin, holy unto God. 
That is really the big doctrine that we are coming to when we read Romans chapter 6. Just as the end of Romans chapter 1 gives us as its main doctrine the nature of sin. Romans 6 has been one of the key passages for Christian theologians in trying to understand what it means to be sanctified. What is sanctification? So we read this in verse 12. You can look at that if you'd like. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You could make that the thesis statement for Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is a message that the church constantly needs to hear. Let me say this to you. There's never a day Never a day in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, a local church, in the life of the church universal, there is never a day in which we don't need to hear this message. A call to be holy. A call to be sanctified, to be conformed to the perfect image of God. Christ himself. This is, in fact, a priority, if not the priority, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in John 17, we went through the Gospel of John as a church several years ago, and John chapter 17, that high priestly prayer, where we really do see the heart of Christ for his people. As Christ prays for his disciples now and his disciples to come. And in the course of that high priestly prayer, which gives us a sense for what Christ is doing right now at this very moment, as he intercedes for us, at the center of that high priestly prayer was these words, sanctify them. John 17, 17. Sanctify them. That is Christ's priority for you. If you want to know what is Jesus' will for you, desire for you as one of his disciples, it is that you be holy. It is that you be sanctified, that you be conformed to his image. Set apart from the world unto God. Just as the articles in the tabernacle and later in the temple were holy unto the Lord. They were not for common use. They were for God's use. So too is the Christian. But we also see a very clear statement that this is God's will for your life. You know, we ask that question and it is, it's a valid question, right? I mean, for us to ask Lord, what is your will for me in terms of who I am to marry, in terms of uh, where I am to move or what job I am to take? Sure, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and delegitimize those sorts of questions before the Lord in earnest prayer where we are trying to seek God's wisdom for the next steps of our lives. But if you want to know, what God's will is for you in general, and I would even argue in any particular instance or situation in which you find yourself in life, simply read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So here's the thing. Christian, you are never in the dark. You're never left in the dark as it concerns the will of God. You're always lit up with knowledge and wisdom about what God desires for you, and that is that you be holy. Whatever, where, whatever your situation Whatever questions are swirling around in your mind, whatever questions you've asked God that he has not answered, this one he's answered. Your sanctification. And what we see as we enter chapter 6 is that Paul, when it comes to sanctification, identifies before he instructs. He identifies before he instructs. What I mean by that is Paul explains who, he explains to believers who they are before telling them what they are to do. Let me say that again. Paul tells believers who they are before telling them what they are to go out and do. You know, it's easy to get this backwards, to be concerned with what we are to do and forgetting or detaching that from who we are. You never ask that question in the course of life. You always want to know what is it that you need in order that it can function in accordance with its identity, in accordance with what it is. We tend to, I think wrongly so, ask the action question before we ask the identity question. And so Paul wants us not to make that mistake, and that is why he identifies us before he tells us what to do. We saw this last week in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, where Paul tells his readers that they have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that they have therefore died to sin and been raised to newness of life. This is who they are as Christians. This is who you are, Christian. You are one who has been united to Christ. You've died to sin. You've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You've died to sin and you've been raised to life in Christ Jesus. That's the who question. And you've got to get this straight first. And so let me just say something about relevance. I've heard some of you who have come to Four Corners and you have told stories about how you were in churches before or you were in certain situations before where the constant concern was the concern to be relevant. And we see that particularly, I was a youth pastor for five years, and, and that's a big part of youth ministry culture, is being relevant. And rightly understood, relevance is, of course, part and parcel of what it means to relate to people. But unfortunately, what is often meant by relevancy, by being Relevant is stripping away all of the doctrine and theology in order to simply race to where people are, real life, what they're facing, prac app. Here's the problem with that. Deep 
Christian thought theology that answers the who question is essential in order for us to answer the what question. Do you see that? We're not talking about just some, some stripped down, a Sermon on the Mount ethic, love Jesus and live. We're talking about understanding who we are in Christ, digging down to the deep pit of that and savoring that, understanding that, and out of all those glorious riches, living in accordance with God's will day by day. So what we see is deep Christian theology is immediately relevant for real life. It is intrinsically relevant for real life because real life can't be lived unless we know who we are. It's that simple. And there's no way in the glorious gospel of Christ we're gonna know who we are without diving deep because what God has made us, what God has done for us in Christ is incredibly profound. It is incomprehensible. It is unfathomable. So much so that Ephesians 2 says we will spend eternity praising him for it and we will never exhaust in our minds, we will never exhaust the ability to see new splendor and new facets of glory in what he has done for us in Christ. It'll take forever to do that. It will take eternity. Today, in verses 6 through 11, Paul unpacks what he introduced in those first five verses of chapter 6. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Living Dead. The Living Dead. If you ask the question, who am I? A short way to answer that, perhaps a strange way to answer that is The Living Dead. That is who you are in Christ. And we see this summarized in Paul's concluding sentence in verse 11. So what I'm going to do right now is just go to the end of our passage because Paul summarizes everything that he says in verses 6 through 10. He summarizes all of that in verse 11. And this is what he says. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, the living dead. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 through 11. I want you to see those first five verses at the beginning there. And then verses 6 to 11 will be our focus today. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in 
newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that was last week. Now we come to our passage for this week. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Go ahead and be seated. You know, I was thinking about that old saying that uh, the scriptures are deep enough to drown an elephant, but shallow enough for a mouse or something like that. And it is so true. You can read these verses and you just see very quickly what the big idea is. You see very quickly what we need to know. And yet you dig in and you realize, oh my goodness, you just can't get to the bottom of this marvelous well. So we praise God for these words. We ask his help now as we study them, that he would help us to see clearly what Paul means And therefore, what the Spirit inspired for us to understand, and that the Spirit would apply these words to our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now, as we go into this time of study, that you would help us to see clearly what's here, that you would give me the ability to communicate clearly and wisdom to do that. And Father, I pray that your Spirit would work in each of our hearts today. God, I pray that you would remind us of who we are and that we would be motivated by that identity to be holy. Lord, thank you for the call to holiness. Thank you for the desire that you have put in each heart who is a Christian to be holy, that we would even want to be holy, that we would even have an appetite for this thing called holiness. Thank you for that, Father. And we praise you as we consider this topic and think about who we are. We praise you that one day we will be entirely holy. Sin will be no more. We will not be in any way, shape, or form sinners. We will be perfect like Christ. And God, we just look forward to that day so much. And we pray for help as we walk this pilgrim road through this life to the celestial city that you would give us the grace we need. And this very week, not knowing what lies ahead for any of us, we ask that what we study here this morning would be relevant immediately to the needs and cares of each of us this week. Lord, only you and your divine wisdom can do that. We pray that you would make your word real to us, and that this very week we would see so clearly 
how it relates to each of our lives. We love you, Father. We thank you for time together with our brothers and sisters this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as those who are in Christ, we are both dead and living. Simultaneously, always, both dead and living. And we see these two sides in our passage today. So the outline for today is very simple. The language actually comes from verse 11. Dead to sin, alive to God. So verses 6 to 7 give us the first one. Dead to sin. And then in verses 8 to 10, folding in verse 11, we get alive to God. And so my hope this morning is that we will understand what it means that we are dead to sin and what it means that we are alive to God. And what we're going to see is Paul's argument is unfolding. So we need to continue, and this is one of the great joys of going through books of the Bible, is we don't have to exhaust the topic today. We're going to be here next week, I pray, God willing, and we'll get to continue down this road of understanding what it is the apostle is trying to teach us. But we first come to dead to sin. So look with me at verses 6 to 7. Verses 6 to 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Here Paul welds together a tight chain of thought or logic. And in fact, Paul always does that. I mean, that's what makes it so hard sometimes to get down to what it is he is saying. It's so packed and so tight. And I think we can capture his meaning with these three words. So we're going we're gonna to walk down the road of Paul's thought with these three stepping stones. And here they are, crucifixion, destruction, and liberation. So you can write these down if you wish, but they really just function to help us walk down the road with Paul. So first, crucifixion. This is the fact. This is a a, a great basic fact of Christian teaching. Paul says, we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him. This is what Paul stated in the previous verses. It is a basic Christian teaching. We've been united with Christ in his death. And how did this Christ die? By crucifixion. If he had died some other way, that other way that he died would be here in place of crucifixion. Christ died by being nailed to a Roman cross. That was the form of execution in the Roman Empire, borrowed from the Persians. He was fastened to a cross. And interestingly enough, it is, I think, and we see this in the New Testament, it is because the one who is hung on a tree is cursed, not in a a crucified way in the context of the ancient Hebrews, but nonetheless, the, the, the idea of being hung on a tree is brought forward so that Christ is crucified in accordance with the execution practices of the Roman Empire And at the same time, 
is hung on a tree as the cursed man, as the cursed Hebrew, the one who bore the curse in our place. We've been united with Christ in his death, his death by crucifixion. And we see clearly here that crucifixion is a stand-in for his death. Uh, crucifixion means death because of verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, he repeats it in verse 8. And so to say that we've been crucified with Christ is the same as saying that we're dead. We've died with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We've died with Christ. Those two are synonymous here. It is important that we understand that this is an accomplished fact, a past tense reality. We were crucified, put to death with Christ. We died to the old, unregenerate, unsaved self. The old man as he is in Adam. Before you became a believer in Christ, before you were born again, before you were justified by faith, fill in the blank. Before you became adopted as a child of God, before you received Christ, before you were grafted in, much language there. But before this happened, you were in Adam. And we see the description of this throughout the latter part of Romans 5. You were in Adam, unregenerate, unsaved. You were the old you, the old man, the old self. But now you have died to that old self. That old self put on the cross with Christ, gone, crucified, dead. And let me say this. This is, this is I think, encouraging for, for all of us. This is true of every Christian, regardless of maturity. Now hear that, hear that. You Christian who is struggling here today, this is true of you. You come here today defeated, you come here today accused by the accuser. You come here today feeling as though you are enslaved to sin. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what you need to understand is that this is a definitive reality. It is an already accomplished fact. You, Christian, regardless of your maturity in Christ, have been crucified with him. It is true of you. Old man, dead. Yes, however, it is true that we must put off the old man daily or repeatedly. And that's where Christian maturity comes in. This is true also. So Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see there that there is the need for us to put off, to put to death every single hour of every single day. And yet at the same time, there is a sense in which that has already been accomplished. Do you see that? That has already been done as a once-for-all definitive act. Both are 
true. And in fact, Paul's focus here is the latter. He is telling his readers what has already happened. This is a matter of Christian identity. Let me read you a quote to pull these two together so you'll understand what it is I'm saying. Thomas Schreiner writes this. In Romans, Paul says that the old person has been crucified. But in Ephesians, he says that believers must put off the old person and put on the new. So just a little pause there. So what is it, Paul? Are we to put off the old person or has the old person already been put off? That's, that's the dilemma. Back to Schreiner. There is no contradiction between the two texts. What we have is the already but not yet tension that informs all of Paul's theology. The old person has been crucified with Christ. And the new person is a reality in Christ. And yet the old person still must be resisted and its desires thwarted. Believers must also choose to clothe themselves with the new person that is theirs in Christ. See, do you see how those two work together? There is a fluid relationship between what has already happened and knowing what has already happened, recognizing that this is who we are and that it is accomplished, it is finished, and yet at the same time doing that very thing daily. Not a contradiction, but the two informing one another. So there's the first word, crucifixion. The second word, destruction. Our crucifixion with Christ was in order that, notice the purpose language, it was in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now what in the world is Paul saying there? In order that the body of sin, we've been crucified with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Well, Paul is saying that the body as controlled and dominated by sin, is halted, stopped, brought to nothing, and in essence, destroyed. The body, as it is controlled and dominated and directed and guided by sin, as its guiding principle, put to nothing. As it were, destroyed. Now this is not to say that the body is evil. We ought not to associate sin with the body. We know that sin comes from the heart. But how is it that sin carries itself forward in the world? How is it that sin is expressed, realized? It is through our bodies. And that's the reason why Jesus uses language like, if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin and so forth. It's the reason why James gives so much attention to the tongue. And it's the reason why Paul in chapter 6 here in verse 13 will go on to say, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So the body is not inherently evil like the Greeks thought, like Plato taught. The body is a good thing and that's why the body will one day be raised. Salvation is not liberation from the body. The body is good in God's creation and in the new creation. 
But in Adam, the body is dominated by sin. Controlled. What was once lively and flourishing, this body controlled by sin, this body dominated by sin, has been brought to nothing, Paul says. Life lived in the body in Adam was characterized by sin, and now in Christ, that has been put down. But this quickly brings us to our third word. So crucifixion, destruction, and now we come to our third word, liberation. Liberation. The purpose for what we've read so far is this so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We've been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see how you have to trace the logic. You have to see how these ideas are related. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the end purpose. That's the end result of all of this, is to liberate God's People. And that should not surprise us because throughout the Old Testament, we find all of this, the, the Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, we find this celebration of God as what? Deliverer. And what is the great picture of salvation that God gives us in redemptive history? The Exodus. And what is at the heart of the Exodus? Liberation. Deliverance from slavery. God was working all of that out according to his purposes, in order to show us that salvation is liberation. Liberation from enslavement to sin. Before a person becomes a Christian, he or she is a slave. All of these movements based on freedom Freedom of expression of yourself, freedom to do as you please. The irony is it's immense it slavery. It's just slavery. It is not as though unbelievers, sinners, are enslaved and want to be free from it. This is the great mistake of those who argue, you know, how is it? So, so if God has chosen and elected some to be saved then that means that those out there who want to be saved can't be saved unless they're elected. That's nonsensical because it fails to understand that there is no one in the world, no one in the world who wants to be saved by God through Christ. It doesn't exist unless they are chosen by God and moved to that desire by the Holy Spirit of God in effectually calling them to that People are not enslaved and want to be free from it. Rather, as Ephesians 4 verse 22 says, this enslavement, listen closely, is to their own deceitful desires. Do you hear that? This, this state of being a slave for the unbeliever is a state of being enslaved to your own sinful desires. It is not as though sinners are forced to do things they don't want to do. Maybe that's how you've thought about it. Maybe that's how you thought about your old life. 
Maybe that's how you think about people in your life who are unbelievers, that they're walking along and just trying to do good. And and so there's something outside of them, this coercive power leaning in over them and moving them always into the pit of sin. That's false. That's not true. They are slaves to their own corrupt desires. And that is why Paul says in Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, listen to his language, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is a a sinner enslaved to? His or her lusts and desires for self, for glory. It's Eve in the garden. Beautiful, tasty, will make me wise. I'll have a bite. That is what dominates in every unbelieving person. And Jesus made this clear in John 3. Light has come into the world and men hated the light. Why? Because men love their evil deeds. They they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. It's what it is to be a sinner. These passions and desires are no longer Lord over the Christian. Paul says, Christ is now Lord. Liberation has happened for the Christian. The one who's been crucified with Christ is now free and under Christ's lordship. By being united with Christ in conversion, by being put to death with him, we are freed from the dominion of sin. Let me say it this way. As Christians, we are freed from the mustness of sin. Think about that for a moment. You, you're in this room this morning, you're a Christian, and, and you act as though you're enslaved to pornography. Not so, Christian. Not so. You act as though you're enslaved to your temper, your anger, whatever it is, fill in the blank. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Your greed, your sloth. Whatever it is, it, you, you act as though you're enslaved to this, that it just dominates you. and you'll, you just never be out from under it. It's, it's your slave master until you die. That's not the way the New Testament conceives of you. You're not under that Lord anymore. You've been freed from its mustness. At any given moment, in any given situation, there is no longer the Lord of must over you with regard to sin. The compulsory power of sin within us has been broken. It's been broken. As verse seven says, one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. Now here I wanna draw your, draw your attention to something interesting. Look at verse seven. We see it translated here as set free. And there should be a little note in your Bible. Takes you down to the bottom of the page and it says, Greek has been justified. What they're telling you is that the verb is not set free. There is a verb that's used frequently for set free, and that's not the verb used here. Now, scholars debate over, you know, with the preposition that comes after, does it mean set free? In some ancient literature, it seems to connote that, and so on and so forth, and I won't 
get into all of that with you. But what I want you to understand is that the verb itself is justified. Literally has been justified from sin. And I think we should not do away with that word. We should keep that word. Set free is certainly in view. But the idea is we have been justified from sin. Now what does that mean? Here's what I think Paul is saying. Listen closely to this. For those who have died with Christ, the penalty has been paid. Justification has occurred, and so sin has been removed. Just think about that for a second. Justification always has to do with the guilt of sin over us. We've been justified from sin, so the guilt of sin has been removed. Now, here's the beauty of it. Here's what Paul is saying. Where the guilt of sin has been removed, the power of sin has been broken. Now, here's what I think is beautiful about that in in terms of our experience. One of these you can't see, but one of them you can see. And here's what I mean. Maybe you've asked yourself before, how do I know my sins are forgiven? Maybe you've struggled with assurance of salvation. And, you know, we, we don't get like a receipt that we can hold on to and go back and, you know, open up our, our, our nightstand and see where God signed it and just be like, okay, my sins are forgiven. You know, I go there and look, oh, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I was worried, but it's okay. I got that, that, that signature page. God has given me concrete proof right there that I have been forgiven, I've been justified. There you go. Well, the truth is he has done that by his Holy Spirit. By giving us the Spirit, we are sealed. But the point I want to make right here is that while we cannot see the removal of guilt, we cannot see the presence of guilt. Right? When you look at your friends who are unsaved, your family members, your neighbor, you look at them and and you think, ah, Guilty before God? Really like rebel sinner before God? Like God's judgment is literally on them. They are guilty before God. You just can't see it. You can't observe it. But here's what you can observe. The power of sin. And so as a Christian, you know if the power of sin has been broken in your life, you have assurance that the guilt of sin has been removed. The two are together. The two are wedded together. That's Paul's logic here in verse seven. One, you cannot see the guilt of sin, but the other, you can. And one necessarily involves the other. So praise God for the assurance we have through the broken dominion of sin in our lives. Not that we don't sin, but that the enslavement to sin that we once knew, and the Christian is able to see this contrast. You can look back on your pre-converted life and you can see what enslavement to sin, enslavement to passions and desires looks like, feels like. You can even see it in other people. But now as a Christian, you see, though imperfect, though undone in so many ways, though falling short, sin's power's been broken. And with that, sin's guilt is removed. So that's the dead part. Because we are dead, 
The power of sin is broken, but now let's look at the living part. We are the living dead. That brings us to our second point, alive to God. Look at verses 8 through 11. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As with the previous point, here I want to give you three words to help guide us through these verses. And so here are the three words for this point, if you want to write them down. Resurrection, completion, and devotion. As we consider the living part of our identity, we've looked at the dead part. Crucifixion, deliverance, and liberation. Now we're looking at the living part. Resurrection, completion, and devotion. So first, resurrection. Being joined with Christ in his death means also being joined with him in his resurrection. We saw this last week with the idea of newness to life. Do you remember that? Newness of life. Verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too walk in newness of life. And then we get in verse 5, this language. We get the future orientation of it. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so Jesus' resurrection, when we come to celebrate Easter, and as Christians we celebrate Easter every day, as Christians who live in light of Easter, we recognize that Easter has immediate, or the resurrection of Christ has immediate implications for us, both for the present and for the future. The resurrection informs our present life and our future hope. Listen to what Charles Hodge says about this. The fact that Christ lives renders it certain, certain, that his people shall live in holiness here and in glory hereafter. I love the way he's put that. Holiness now, glory later. So the resurrection immediately tells us, this is how I ought to live in this very moment, and this is what I ought to look forward to. Do you see this twofold relevance of Christ's resurrection? As you think about who you are in Christ, as you think about what you've been born again to, to use Peter's language, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, are you looking forward to the future and living in the newness that Christ's resurrection brings. And all of this, by the way, is packed into the symbolism of baptism. This is one of the reasons I think believers' baptism is so important. is because when a person is, when they go under the water, they are immersed, believers' baptism by immersion, when they go under the water and they come up, it is communicating to the world, it's communicating to God's people, it's communicating to themselves that they are being raised up to a new kind of life and that, that resurrection up from, that, that immersion coming up from the water images what will happen one day with their bodies when they will be called to be with Christ and they will meet him 
in the air. What beautiful symbolism. What immense teaching is packed into the symbol of baptism. So that's the first is resurrection. The second here is completion. The second word to help us walk along this road is completion. The resurrection demonstrates something very important about Christ's death. It was once and for all. It was once and for all complete. Christ's death and resurrection are not repeatable acts. As the one who absorbed the penalty of sin in his own body in a one-time act of sacrifice, he now lives without regard to sin. Christ took on sin, and now he lives without regard to sin. Sin has been brought to nothing in Christ, dealt with and buried in his own body. Do you see that? Christ took sin on the cross, and he absorbed it, and he buried it when he was put in the tomb. Amazing. The mighty Christ, he who, as the church father said, reigns from the tree, defeating death, defeating sin, appearing as nothing, naked, bleeding, dying, mocked, champion, king, conqueror, deliverer, liberator, Christ, the one who crushes on the cross and in the tomb the serpent who deceived. Eve. Romans 8, 3 says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What happened when Christ died and was buried is sin was condemned. Sin was condemned there in Christ, in the flesh, in his very body. Just as sin entered the world through the body of one man, sin was condemned through the body of one man. Christ as he put it to death. And where sin has been dealt with, death has been overcome. The two must be seen together. And this reality is demonstrated by resurrection. The dominion of death has been broken. When Christ was raised, he was raised to never, ever, ever die again. Lazarus was different. We're meant to draw this contrast. Guess what? Lazarus died again. He's not here today. You can't call Lazarus. You can't text Lazarus. He's gone. He's dead. He died again. We don't get a report of that. We don't read that anywhere. But at some point in the life of that blessed man, he died. Not so with Christ. Where Lazarus was, as it were, resuscitated, Christ was eternally resurrected. The once and for all nature of Christ's death to sin is a repeated theme in the book of Hebrews. So chapter seven, verse 27, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It was one act, never to be repeated. This is one of the problems that Christians have with the Catholic mass. Luther talked about this much in the 16th century. The Catholic mass is, is uh, Functionally, a re-sacrificing of Christ. No, no, no. No, no, no. Hebrews is clear. He died once and for all. He put sin away. He entered into the holiest place and he offered himself as the priest and the lamb as the sacrifice for sin. One time. That's all it took. 
We don't need the mass. We need Calvary. Period. So we see resurrection, completion, and now thirdly, we see devotion. When Christ came the first time, he came to deal with sin. That was his whole purpose for coming the first time. Christ came as the one who was dealing with sin in his body. He was perfectly sinless. He had no sin. He never sinned with his body. He never had sin in his heart. Inconceivable for those of us who sin and have sinned from the very beginning. Jesus, not so. Not a single sin. And yet we see that he is the one who came as the one who deals with sin. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. And listen to how the writer of Hebrews contrasts Christ's first coming and his second coming. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why did Christ come the first time? To deal with sin. That's why he came. He came to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. He came and did this by becoming sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. But now that Christ is risen, sin has been eternally dealt with. So the life he now lives, he lives to God irrespective of sin. You might read this language uh, that Christ now lives to God, and just you're left scratching your head, like, hold on a second, Christ always lived to God, right? I mean, Christ was about his father's business in his father's house at 12 years old. He, his food was to do the will of his father. We've already read in Romans 5 that he was obedient and righteous through his one act, his one righteous act. So how can we say that Christ at his resurrection began to live to God when before he was always living to God for the glory of the Father, doing the will of the Father. It seems confusing. But what we're seeing here is that now that sin in him has been eternally dealt with, he now lives irrespective of sin before the face of the Father. As man in our place. Sin is a gone category in Christ. Before the face of the Father. He took on sin and then was vindicated by his resurrection, which showed that he was indeed the perfect sacrifice for sin. And this idea of living unto God is where Paul ends this portion of his discussion. So we're going to end here today in verse 11. Look with me there. Living unto God. You, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What do we do? That's what we do. Paul will continue his argument in the following verses and we'll see a little bit more of what it means for us to do that. We, we, we have more to cover that we can't import here. We're going to see, so stay tuned. Let's continue to walk down this road with Paul as we see more and more what it means to be dead to sin and to live to God, what it looks like. But I want to leave you today with one major implication. And it comes from one word in verse 11. So notice verse 11, the verb that Paul uses, consider. 
consider. The Greek word here means to reckon. Reckon. Reckon yourselves. You also must reckon yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is so, so, so important how you view yourself. You see that? It is so important how you conceive of yourself. We are sinners saved by grace, but we are Christians. We are not, at the end of the day, sinners. We are saints of God. That is who we are, right? It's not like you are a sinner and a saint. It's like half and half. No, you are a saint of God who in the already not yet tension between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, you sin and daily need to mortify sin and put it away. But brother, sister, you are a saint of God. That is who you are. And if you don't see that, if you don't savor that, if you don't reckon yourself in that way, sanctification will be a very difficult process indeed. Sanctification begins at the gate, at the gate, with reckoning ourselves rightly, considering ourselves in our identity with Christ. We will see in Romans 7 how the battle rages within the Christian. We will see in Galatians 5 the battle between the flesh and the spirit within the Christian. But here's the thing. You're not part flesh and part spirit. It's not as though you have these two natures, 50-50, that are fighting each other, and that's just who you are. No, you are a saint of God. You are the new man. You are a new person in Christ. Own that identity. Know that identity. And I say again with Paul, Christian, reckon yourself dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It has happened. It is who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for showing us our identity in Christ. And Father, we recognize that we do sin Lord, we sin constantly, Lord, in ways we don't even know and see. And even our best efforts are polluted. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we just praise you that through Christ we have overcome And the power of sin, the dominion of sin is broken. And though we sin, we are saints of God. And we praise you for who we are. Would we glory in who you are, God? Would we glory with joyful joyful confidence that we have this future hope and we have been called to this present life? God, we ask that 
you would just reorient all of our minds to a deeper, more robust understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Lord, would you help us all to see as we walk through Paul's language here in Romans 6 and following, how it is that we battle against the sin that we know so well, and at the same time, do not fall into the defeated place of seeing ourselves as just sinners. Lord, the, the difficulty of, of this fight, this fight for the mind, we pray for help in Christ's name. And Lord, we ask you now as we go to the Lord's Supper that you would bless it. We thank you for what Christ did on the cross. We offer this time to you and we just give you praise for what we get to experience now as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.